The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Good evening and welcome to The Money Show this evening. It's good to have you with us. Lots to come on tonight. show, some really fabulous tales and insights and bits of wisdom and huge courage, uh, courageous actions being taken by entrepreneurs tonight as well. We'll pick up on that tonight. Why a former journalist went into the bookselling business in downtown Johannesburg. The amazing story of how I make money with Griffin Shea. Um, he runs an independent bookstore in the heart of Joburg. He's on the corner of Commissioner and Loveday Street. I think if you've been... Uh, to his to bridge books i'd love to hear uh, your feedback on it apparently inside an old barclays bank branch or is it the old barclays headquarters i'm not 100 percent sure in downtown johannesburg love your insights on that this evening we'll talk about how you can get a tax break by supporting rhinos and lions and other endangered animals toby shabshak from stuff studios with our tech with toby feature how the Standard Bank Group got itself into trouble in a fight between AFRI Forum and the EFF. Vodacom's uh, interim results will pick up also this evening with Bronwyn Williams. She is the trend translator and future finance specialist of Flux Trends. She's pulled together a book of radical ideas on how to save South Africa from itself. And it turns out yours truly is a contributor uh, to that fine tome. Welcome to The Money Show on this uh, wonderful Monday evening, a tough day on our market. Uh, However, um, we will pick up on that in some detail in a moment. We're uh, told that uh, Shamil Joseph not quite ready for us yet, so we'll take a pause in a moment as I bring you up to speed with some of the big events that have been happening in your world today. And amongst those is the astonishing return, the astonishing return of uh, David Cameron. The the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has appointed David Cameron to run his foreign affairs. David Cameron returning from the political wilderness and a shake-up in the run-up to a general election that Britain's Conservative Party is really worried it might lose. It's been 20 points behind in the polls. It's been behind the polls for the last 18 months to two years, the whole fiasco around the way in which Boris Johnson uh, and his cohort led the mess that was Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, uh, damaged their credibility, the economy in the United Kingdom really not growing. And they've also got a massive reputation issue as well. Uh, Rishi Sunak this morning firing his Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. She accused police of being biased. She's a massively divisive character and a divisive individual within the Conservative Party. She's being replaced by a man called James Cleverly. He's leaving the Foreign Office job open and therefore an opportunity for Rishi Sunak to go back to the future. An astonishing appointment because you would think that you would want to keep David Cameron as far away from your cabinet as possible. He's charming, he's garrulous. I met him um, when he was here in South Africa a couple of years ago and he did. he's had very little to do with politics since the Brexit vote. Remember... He resigned from Parliament and he stood up in Parliament. He said, yep, I used to be the future once, um, but I'm not anymore. And he bowed out. In 2002, Theresa May, who would later become Prime Minister, uh, she took over from David Cameron. She warned at the party's annual conference and the Conservatives were appalled by this. But she, in 2002, Theresa May, who's turned into a very sensible backbencher uh, in politics now, she warned the Conservatives in 2002 that they were becoming 
the nasty party. And they certainly have, over the years, become the nasty party. They're 20 points behind an uninspiring Labour Party. And by changing the face of the Conservatives, it may just be the smartest move yet by Rishi Sunak to try and make himself re-electable. Does David Cameron change that field? I wonder. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, Rishi Sunak has been in office as Prime Minister for just over a year, considerably longer than his predecessor, Liz Truss. Remember her and the lettuce? Um, and yeah, uh, Rishi Sunak wants re-election. Will he be able to shake the image of the nasty party? I suspect that is what it's all about um, as the UK heads towards an election, as do we, as does the United States next year as well. An unusual drop in profits for Vodacom. First half earnings down more than 4%. Cell phone providers, of course, need to find creative ways of generating new incomes. So many of us switching from voice to data consumption. It's also got a massive additional cost when it comes to providing backup power, securing its batteries and its generators, because one, it can't rely on ESCOM, and two, puts in a battery and a generator, and somebody pulls up in a truck in the middle of the night and steals it, takes it off. Vodacom is seeing also losses in its Ethiopia business, which is brand new, and it plans to break even there by 2026, but it is doing some interesting stuff in Egypt as well. Shamil Jusup is the chief executive at Vodacom. That shift of voice to data. Hardly anyone other than the most annoying call centers ever calls me on my number anymore, um, Shamil. Most of WhatsApp calls, most of us are finding data service providers to connect us to each other on the office Wi-Fi rather than making a phone call across your network. How big a blow is that to you as chief executive of a cell phone company? Uh, thanks, Bruce. Uh, so, I mean, it's about 20% of our revenues across the footprint now still comes from voice. Um, and you are seeing a transition from voice to data uh, or data or, or other voice being carried over data networks. So that's one. The second thing you are seeing, especially in South Africa, is this trend of, uh, you know, during load shedding, we see a, a distinct increase in traffic and uh, utilization because simply put, people don't have anything else to do. So they go to their phones. Uh, but um, the uh, so, so we do we do see that, but we also see a commensurate decrease in voice during that time. So they tend not to talk in the dark, but tend to to basically use data more. Uh, so I think you know I think going that's, on to, uh, going on to social media to rant. Yeah, going to social media to rant and try and stream while there's a, a data connection. Um, when we, I mean, with Wi-Fi more and more widely available, and you can go almost anywhere nowadays, you'll pick up a Wi-Fi signal, and most restaurants will give you a connection for nothing. The, the massive mobile data contracts are also less and less necessary. I mean, whereas previously you might have bought 10 gigabytes of data, you could probably get away with five today. Or you bought five, you can get away with one. Or you bought one, you can get away with half a gig, whatever it might be. Um, the sort of need for the huge independent data packages also seems to be declining. Honestly, no. People are starting to use more and more data as we see it. Really? The data is becoming more prolific in people's lives. So the average customer is now spending on, uh, 3.8 gigs uh, of data per, per month. Um, and actually, even if you've got Wi-Fi, <laughs> what happens is wherever you go now, so you use data in between. So you, you actually, when people move on to Wi-Fi, you see a drop initially, but then you see a recovery as, as data is now in every facets of our lives. Um, and so, you know, so we do see, we do see that, uh, you know, that, that growth still, still being there. 
with traffic up 45% in the half in South Africa. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Wi-Fi then is the That's gateway huge. drug, if you like, to mobile data. Yeah, so Wi-Fi plays uh, an important part, of course, making your data centric, but I think mobile also plays. So we see it more as complementary. And uh, that's why, you know, some of the uh, why we want to be in, in fiber as well, so that you can provide connectivity to customers in whatever form they require. Yeah, it's astonishing how the shifts are happening and just how much. I mean, it's a, a huge consumption of data, 3.8 gigs on average per person across the Vodacom network. That's a huge amount of data. And it goes, I suppose, to explain then, the enormous capital expenditure that's going into the data networks and you continue to invest in it because anybody who's ever consumed data knows that the more you consume it's a little bit like i don't know a tube of pringles once you pop you can't stop that's the advert that they play on pringles um it becomes you know somewhat addictive you would call it necessary you would call it part of our lives but you know people aren't always consuming stuff that is necessary they also consume a lot of stuff that's good fun yeah, that's true, and I think it's uh, that's why I say it's in all facets. Right? There's in, you, it's entertainment, it's communication, it's work, uh, you know, um, and and then of course now there's also tracking assets, all kinds of things that you can use data for. Do you track? I mean, what we spend our time on? Are we spending more of our time streaming movies and sort of entertainment channels and games than we are doing work? What's the breakdown between fun and productivity? Well, I think, I mean, you, it depends, right? So you have different, uh, you have different cohorts. So your, your, let's say your business centric user would, of course, be more, um, on, on business and less, but social media, of course, plays a big role across the board. And then, and then, of course, into entertainment, uh, does, that does come in, uh, but that would then come in after hours. Whereas if you go to some of the younger segments, uh, you will see, a big penetration of um, of uh, social media, but also uh, you know using it um, for gaming and all kinds of things. So very much depending on uh, on on the segment, but uh, social media and then of course entertainment being two two of the biggest categories within the uh, within the uh, the construct of what people do. And social media, of course, more and more video-based. It's more and more pushing out messages that are video-based and really creative messages, really active advertising within those segments. That's very hungry for data. Again, that consumes more data than an audio feed would or a text-based service like Twitter used to be, for example. That's correct. So you will, you know, you are, I mean, something like TikTok or, or Instagram or even uh, Facebook stories now is more data heavy because you're consuming a lot more to watch those videos than when it is pure text. Yeah. No, it's astonishing, and that's uh, hence the, he the heavy investment. You're fairly new in Ethiopia, lots of startup costs there. Um, that you're hoping to be breaking even by 2026. You're in a deal there with Safaricom, with whom you've got an investment anyway. What's interesting is how Egypt is proving to be a very solid contributor to the bottom line of, of Vodacom, even though I think it's probably the priciest deal Vodacom's ever done. Well, uh, you know, it was a uh, price asset on the continent. I think the market structure in Egypt is very good. 28% growth in, in the half, so, and lots of growth still opportunities. So we were quite excited 
when we looked at the market. Um, and uh, so you've, you know, in terms of the structural parts, I mean, pricing is is uh, very much controlled by uh, by uh, by government on the one side uh, to encourage investment. So you've got you've got that. The the second part is that. Um, you know, you've got uh, financial services, which is just growing exponentially. So the focus we put on that is already starting to to bear dividends. And then, of course, fiber is one of the growth areas that we see uh, in Egypt that's still quite untapped. So, uh, so uh, a good potential for us there. And then, then, of course, enterprise services as well. But what we're doing there, which is quite smart, uh, Bruce, is also the integration of content into the platform. So we sign up with... Uh, big OTT players, uh, we buy bulk and then we combine that into your package. And that's actually growing uh, quite nicely for us as well. So, so um, you know, but it's the one market actually in Africa which has managed to gain that success. Um, and we now want to try and replicate that uh, into various different markets. And we sit in South Africa, you're spending a billion rand on generators and diesel and batteries and security to protect it all. I mean, uh, the great South Africa constraint, of course, is still very much part of the story. Very much so. I think you've got one, you've got consumers under pressure. But I think, um, secondly, although we've seen a, a better performance in the second quarter, so I think that's encouraging, uh, especially on the prepaid users, so strong, uh, strong performance there. But I think, uh, you know, the load shedding is definitely impacting. So it's impacting uh, costs. Uh, and, um, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, we, we're having to manage uh, through that. I think, you know, our bold moves in terms of the investment that we made four and a half billion over the last four and a half years has made us and given us the most reliable network, the best in test network. So, you know, we, we have uh, capitalized on that. By making sure that we, we, uh, you know, we 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 more ready than competition. It's a fascinating insight and fascinating business. The group chief executive at Vodacom, Shamil Joseph, this evening on the Money Show. Shamil, thank you. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in retail's golden quarter this Black Friday to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights series. Apps is a registered FSP. On to Poli von Veik now in a spat between two highly politicized organizations at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum and a bank at the center of it failing to properly identify the fact from fiction is leaving questions over whether Standard Bank's processes are truly up to scratch or not. It comes after Standard Bank admitted that its fraud centre incorrectly labelled two proofs of payment documents that the EFF had sent to AFRI Forum as fraudulent. AFRI Forum has been lauding its court victories over the EFF as a secondary source of funding. So it wouldn't have taken much to cause a fight. Poli von Veik is at the centre of covering that, covering that fight. The journalist with Scorpio at Daily Maverick on the line to us from Cape Town this evening. Just a quick backstory here, Poli. Just bring us up to speed, please. Because AFRI Forum and EFF from time to time go head to head, go to the courts. Um, generally speaking, I th- I'm not sure if, there's, if AFRI Forum's lost an action yet but um, they, they keep claiming compensation from the EFF which is having to pay up the EFF has paid, paid up but then suddenly there was this ruckus over fraudulent proofs of payment just bring us up to speed please 
Yeah, exactly, Bruce, and good evening. So what happened was that the EFF owed Afri Forum 316,000 rand, and that's the backstory relating to a land claims action that they uh, lost against Afri Forum. But the real story, no matter who the parties are, actually, is the fact that Standard Bank had a massive and stunning lapse in uh, in control, it seems. So, so the EFF sent two documents through their lawyers which were proofs of payment of affecting that 316,000 rand to Afroforum's lawyers. And Afroforum um, happily published it on the internet and said, this is what the EFF have just contributed to Afroforum's health, financial health. And then some sharp-eyed people realized something was really very wrong with the letterheads um, of the proof of payments. And the very obvious signs firstly were that an old Standard Bank logo was used. And the second really off thing was that uh, directors of the company from 2015, people who have resigned um, almost 10 years ago, uh, were listed on um, the directors. And usually these things, even for journalists, are um, red flags when you look for fraudulent documents or documents that have been doctored or tampered with uh, because frauds, frauds do make mistakes and, and these are some of the signs that you look for um, when you, when you wonder so, about these things. And so Standard Bank, in response to inquiries, Standard Bank go, well, obviously it's fraud because we would never publish a proof of payment on a document that's 10 years old. Fred Paswana mm. hasn't been our chairman since 2015, so therefore this must be <laughs> fake. It's fake. And that exactly. caused all kinds of other uh, distractions. Yes. So then Afri Forum asked for, for confirmation and Standard Bank's fraud center says yes, and they used the word fraudulent. And then all hell exploded. But the, the problem here is then, first, the, unit, the business unit used a proof of payment letters with an old logo and an outdated list of directors. And the second problem is that the fraud center of Standard Bank then used this um, information partially to decide that the EFF's proof of payment documents were fraudulent. Um, and, and yeah, so... So Standard Bank um, is in trouble at the moment relating to their fraud centre and a stunning lapse in judgment. Yeah, at some point, though, the EFF must have said, hold on a second, but here is the money went out of our account connected to this proof of payment. Surely even AFRI Forum, despite the fact that they're really enjoying the fact that the EFF is being accused of being fraudulent, um, because they would, um, must be gone, hold on a second, but we've got money in our account. It's okay. Everybody calm down. Did anybody do that? Yes, so that happened. The uh, Afri Forum realized the money did indeed land in their bank accounts, but then they, they suspected that the EFF was trying to hide a possible donor, which we all know that they were, <laughs> has, <laughs> there has been a yeah. lot of conversations relating to the EFF donors and third parties making payments on behalf of especially the EFF leaders. So it wasn't an outlandish claim. It was just a claim that sort of fitted in with the broad situation. <sighs> And in yeah, this but this is where this is where true. things go horribly wrong, don't they? I mean, Polly. I mean, one's biases and, and and prejudices and knowledge and understanding and beliefs all come to play here, and suddenly you have an enormous storm in a teacup, all because a bank was using outdated documents as proof of payment. Yeah. I guess there's the there's there's trouble happening 
an, in Rosebank uh, at the moment, and I, I'm wondering if, mm-hmm. if heads are going to roll over this. What's, what's your feedback on that? Well, I think if heads were going to roll, it would be some of the highest heads in Standard Bank. And that's actually the story here. No matter, again, who the parties are and what the biases are, is that one party relied on the fraud centre of Standard Bank for the information before they made allegations. And that is the central problem here. Even a journalist, Bruce, um, would have in the end said, but Standard Bank's fraud centre said this. So, and the question here is, if you cannot trust a bank's fraud center, in who and what can you then trust? And worse, you know, what other measures are blowing in the wind over there at Standard Bank if these basics turned out to be so messy? Bolly van Veek, thank you. Raising interesting and uncomfortable questions this evening. Producers, when we ask the nice people at the Blue Bank what their response is, please. The Money Show. The Markets. Arthur Karras is a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Vodacom's updates a decline in earnings, Arthur. Um, they're attributing it to startup costs in Ethiopia. But I think the cell phone business is much tougher than it used to be, isn't it? Uh, it definitely is. I think that we've, um, we're all using a lot more data than what you used to, but we're using less voice. And you can see that the data volumes are still looking good, but the prices don't go up. In fact, for most of us, they've gone down for a couple of years. And Vodacom is suggesting that they're going to start to go up a little bit. But I think that's part of what they're facing. Lots of volume growth, but no price growth. Is there any big problems that you spotted in these first half results other than a, a slight decline in profits explained away by Ethiopia? I think that, uh, that you need to look through this result. They spent about $11 billion on purchasing um, Vodacom Egypt. They also issued about 250 million shares for that. So there's been some dilution at the per share level. There's additional debt um, to pay for that business. So that's something that the business still has to digest. Um, so I think that you kind of need to look through that. Globally, mobile businesses you know, have gotten mature and I think Vodacom is on that track and they are looking for growth by buying into into other markets where they think there's still scope for um, for consumers to use more data. Yeah, uh, we are. It, it's all the story about data. We've been talking about this for 20 years and it's truly coming to uh, to the fore now. And it's a very expensive service to provide and they can't necessarily get all of their money back very quickly in the same way as they did with voice in the olden days. Harmony came out with a really strong trading update this morning. It was quite nice to see, actually, an 8% leap in the share price related to news, real news of good production. Yes, good production, lower costs and higher grades. Um, definitely the kind of thing that um, can be a little bit uh, surprising, you know, in a very positive and nice way from gold mining companies where they've faced yeah. rising costs for some time. And as a, as a gold mining industry in South Africa, we face um, getting lower declining grades for many years. So a very positive result. And you can see that the market positively surprised by that given the strong result. And they sticking to their guidance for the year. So definitely a great result from Harmony, which remains, which is now the most um, leveraged uh, gold mining company that you can buy as a South African because it's got um, mainly South African, or almost all South African production, um, as opposed to the other gold mining companies that have, that have got quite a bit of global um, gold mining, gold mines in them, which means you just don't get the same leverage when the rand weakens. 
Yeah. Now, that's the big advantage, of course, and the big downside when it goes against you. But Harmony in a sweet spot right now. Premier Food seems to be holding up a bit better than Tiger Brands. Yes, and I think that you can see a lot of the story there is what, what, we've, what, what you've had with these food companies, and it was apparent in, the, in what's happened with Rhodes Food Group as well, even though we've only had a trading update from them, is that what we've seen is we've seen very sharp rises in their commodity prices, and they're unable to pass that all on in one go to, their, to the consumers. Typically, the, the, the supermarkets that they sell the goods through uh, won't accept that. So they get a steady increase in, in prices over time, so they kind of catch up, as it were. And at the same time, they've got a quite a big program of rolling out new, more efficient mega bakeries that can produce bread in a, in a more efficient way. So they're seeing the benefit of that as well. Thank you, Arthur Karras. Arthur is a portfolio manager at Macro Solutions for the Old Mutual Investment Group. Bringing us very neatly to half past six this evening here on The Money Show. Time for your very latest eyewitness news with Safiso Zulu. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action led insights through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to the show this evening. I guess it would have happened anyway, uh, but I can't help but wonder if Home Affairs wasn't messing the CEO of AECI around and making it easier for the company to do business, the outcome of a strategic decision might and only might have been different. As I say, we'll never really know. AECI told us last week that they've retained expensive lawyers to take on Home Affairs, which is finding it somehow very, very hard to process the chief executive, Holger Riemensperger's work visa. It's been six months so far and AECI is fed up. Well, today the company is saying it's getting out of non-core businesses to focus exclusively on its core mining and chemicals offerings. That makes sense. Narrow in and do what you do best, do it well and become a global leader. That's the goal. Mining is going to remain its core focus. It's looking for growth, not in South Africa, but in Asia Pacific region, South America and North America. And it wants to be a top three player in the globe by 2030. So you've got a brand new chief executive, brand new strategy. And the strategy is not about investing heavily in South Africa. If anything, it's about getting out of South African businesses as it focuses in on its core and that core is going to focus outside of South Africa. I'm not saying it's because the CEO can't get a visa, but it must, when you are the chief executive and you look at how easy or difficult it is to do business in a particular geography, you do have to question um, just how much a geography really wants your business when they mess you around to the extent that he's been messed around so far. Well, on to a more upbeat tale this evening. And it's interesting to see that you can get a tax incentive for helping endangered animals. It's very specific. You can't go and get a tax credit for dropping a coin in a tin outside your local shop on a Saturday morning. But if you play your cards right and you are truly involved in conservation of particular endangered animals, you could get some money back. Candace Stevens is the chair of the Sustainable Finance Coalition. Uh, Candace, what does the incentive entail? How does it work? Bruce, thanks so much for having me on the show. So as you said, the tax incentive is quite unique and quite niche, but it allows South African taxpayers to deduct any conservation and management expenses from their taxable income if they're safeguarding some of our most iconic species like rhino or lion. 
what sort of conservation do I need to be doing? Could I have a cattle farm and a, a, a small cage at the bottom left of the farm out of sight with a mangy old lion that I'm keeping for canned lion hunting one of these days? But I call myself a conservationist. How do you stop that sort of thing from, from happening? Because we're very creative when it comes to leveraging incentives in our country. <laughs> We are quite creative and, and yes, you're absolutely right about the, the level um, of conservation that this tax incentive supports. So fortunately, one of the things we do have in South Africa is some really good uh, conservation science, um, legislation and best practice around species conservation. So this tax incentive is directly linked into what's referred to as NIMBA or the Biodiversity Act and specific biodiversity management plans, which bring together the best conservation scientists in the country to determine exactly what types of conservation actions we would seek to reward with this tax incentive. So no, you don't get a tax incentive uh, for, for keeping a mangy lion at the edge of your property, but you do get it for upholding the highest standard of conservation towards these threatened species. And like I said, we've got legislative um, protection and standards that are then built into the tax law. Okay, so it's built into tax law, but NEMBA makes the calls. NEMBA makes the calls and says this is a worthwhile thing. Then Edward Kisfetter comes along with a with a clipboard and says, okay, but actually you've only got nine rhinos, we need 15. Actually, no, it's not a conservation project. How much of that stuff of the audit process of SARS, which anybody who's had to deal with SARS knows it can be tricky to extract uh, the benefit of an incentive uh, from the tax man. They don't like giving money away. Um, and this is not their idea. It's somebody else's, isn't it? So they don't like giving money away, which is why um, we've actually been able to to move pr- quite progressively with regards to these positive tax incentives. And within the Global Biodiversity Framework, which was signed at the end of last year in Montreal in Canada, Target 18 you know, puts um, a, a global target out there for countries to create positive incentives. So the fact that South Africa have been able to do this uh, is quite incredible. Um, and I think we might be one of the very first countries to create positive incentives under Target 18. But importantly, the supporting documentation and the vetting and verification process with SARS is tied directly into our environmental legislation. So what you'll see in the Income Tax Act is that the specific requirements of the Tax Act are the specific requirements within NEMBA and the Biodiversity Act. And importantly, they link directly into biodiversity management plans, which are built over quite a long period of time. Um, and like I said, build together experts from across the country and government to create these gazetted standards. And so we've really sought to, to install an incentive that really does uphold conservation management that is vetted across the board. And look, I really don't mean to poo-poo a really great initiative and a really important thing, but I just do know that sometimes these tax incentives are in place for a while. We had Section 12, I think, J of the Income Tax Act, which was designed to grow small businesses. People took the mickey, SARS got cross, that got cancelled. There's a new electricity, um, Section 12-something of the of the Income Tax Act, which people are taking advantage of now. This is a tax advantage for people in conservation. Does running your own game farm and having tourists come to look at the animals qualify for the incentive? Or is this 
uh, a sort of private agriculture, you know, artificial insemination of rhinos and breeding programs. I mean, where do, where does it start? Where does it finish? So let's take rhinos as an example. Um, and I, I suppose you could take any threatened species, but some of the more iconic and sometimes contentious ones like rhino and lion is exactly where we started. And so what's built into the biodiversity management plans for rhino are the highest possible level um, of conservation activity around rhino. Um, and so only if you sign a biodiversity management agreement with contractually locks in an individual taxpayer um, into these specific conservation actions that are then vetted um, and have to meet those national standards, are you able to obtain the tax incentive? So it's not like someone in the country who's got a handful of rhino that, you know, they're really not looking after with conservation or the, the greater conservation of the rhino population in mind would be able to just approach SARS um, and, and access the tax incentive. They would have to sign a biodiversity management agreement, which is signed off by the Minister of the Environment um, to, to really ensure that it, it's these instances which are quite niche and specified and um, that are covering species management in different parts of the country mm. that are not uh, akin to agriculture or farming in any way, but really the, the strongest form of conservation that we can possibly identify and then contractually um, agree to. Uh, it's massively exciting. It really is, Candice. So well done to Barbara Creasy for getting this one over the go over the over the line. Because I think, I mean, she's probably the most soft-spoken and low-profile government minister quietly working in the background. But also uh, the chair of sustainable finance, Candice Stevens. This first ever tax incentive for threatened species like rhino and lion. But there will be hoops. There will be hoops that you will have to jump through. A lot of people will be very grumpy with the admin involved. But there are so many of these incentives that people rip the ring out of. And it's good to have one that has been massively and carefully thought through. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. This is The Money Show. I am Bruce Whitfield. Toby Shapshak is standing by the Chief at Stuff Studios. But before that, exciting news, big news, breaking news. Doof, doof, doof. On your next Money Show, a brand new feature. We're looking for signals from around the world. Things that tell us what's going to happen next. What, where and how. Next time on The Money Show, Dr. Rutendo Huindingui, the founding director at Tribe Africa. He's going to be bringing us up to speed with what's happening around the African continent. An investment school with Chantal Marks at F&B Wealth and Investments. Help in managing your money. That's what's coming up next time on The Money Show. Now, Toby Shapshak is going to be reviewing for us a brand new set of in-ear earphones, headphones. What are these things? Pods? Are they pods? What are they? Earpods? I think that's what they're called. Earpods. Um, Earpods. And Toby, of course, has got earpods. Thank I knew that we earpods because this is the Jabra Elite 8. Um, are these earpods... The things that are designed for exercise. So we know that Apple made a big fuss over its AirPods um, that you can sort of mm -hmm. like you know, run 100 kilometers in. Fuff the cloud could play rugby wearing them. I mean, are these things designed for for exercise? Are they designed for leisure? What is the, the purpose of, of many of these? Do you have different ones for different purposes? Well, these ones are specifically designed for exercise boost, which is why they're probably not, uh, we are not their target market. Uh, but 
what's what's great about them is that Jabra have been these audio pioneers for years. They they make really excellent products, and and you know they they were the, one of the first companies to have these brilliant AirPods earbuds. I think that's the technical term ear earbuds. I think Apple calls theirs AirPods. Anyway, these earbuds are, are particularly good. They have um, very good fit in your ear, really good sound quality. And, you know, Jabra's been making over-ear headphones for a long time. They've been making uh, different kinds of microphones for a long time. They they really know what they're doing. They're a very good Danish Toby, Toby, when we're talking um, about superior audio quality, we need to deliver superior audio quality. This is not superior audio quality, so let's do justice to superior audio quality. More with Toby Shapshak. In a moment, we'll get him on the phone. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Toby Shapshak, you would think, Toby, by now that airport lounges would have made it easier to communicate every interview we ever try and do in an airport lounge. It always sounds a bit... <laughs> but maybe that's the way to keep people off their phones in the airport lounges. Talk to me, please, about this fabulous uh, Jabra Elite 8. I, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, Bruce, and uh, uh, it's by no way a, rec- a, re- a, re- a reflection on the Jabra that, that my, no, my Apple AirPods awful. were so bad. Anyway, the, the, you know, the thing is, is Jabra make great quality. They make really fantastic uh, audio quality devices. They've been making them for a long time. They, they understand audio in that kind of particular way these audio fanatics do. You know, I'm, I'm not such a person, but, um, you know, in Stuff's office, they have been so warmly received that they have replaced, you know, one of the audiophiles daily earbuds. So that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty good thing. These are, these are you know, audio experts. Um, and the, the price is particularly good. You know, they're like three and a half thousand rand. They're not, they're not excessive. They're really good quality. I paired them with a, with a Kindle uh, and an audio book from Audible um, and listen to the audio book with the Kindle just as a, as a test. I think they, they're really excellent. And of course, you know, Jabra have been fiddling with uh, earbuds in people's ears for long enough to know how to make them comfortable. They fit quite nicely in your ear. The silicone thingy me jiggy billigies, you know, stick into your ear nicely and they seal the ear well. There's good noise cancelling and there's, you know, it's excellent audio quality, snug fit. And a, and a good price for the, the value that you get for it. Now, but for me, I mean, if I plugged in an AirPod, uh, an earbud into my ear and I streamed audio, whether it be music or whether it be a podcast or whether it be a Kindle book being read to me, I wouldn't necessarily go onto an app and fiddle. But there is an app for the purists that compares with Jabra that allows you then to tinker with the bass and up the treble and get the balance right and actually get a, a better sound quality than the standard settings would allow. Exactly, Bruce. And, and thank you for mentioning it uh, and doing my job for me. Yes, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a really useful thing if you know how to adjust those things. I'm, a, I'm like, I kind of know how it works and I understand how it works and I can listen to it, but you know, I'm not. I've never been someone who like opens the bonnet to the car and tinkers. So, you know, uh, for the most part, I, I'm, a, I'm a. Don't tell anyone, Bruce. I'm a bit of an audio pleb. Um, but these are fantastic. You're going to leave it there, I Toby Shapshak. Thank you very much. The chief at Stuff Studios, Toby Shapshak, on the line to us on the Money Show.
this evening. Time for Eyewitness News. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show. It's brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. We're going to talk about when fair trade is fair trade and where fair trade is a verification that does not symbolize fair trade. Dr. Joshua Bell is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology and has been diving into the fair trade certification. Uh, it's part of a Rhodes doctoral study, Rhodes University doctoral study. So we'll pick up on that this evening. We'll also catch up on our book review tonight and it is the what is she the editor i suppose because she's pulled together a whole series to podcast series did bronwyn williams and has taken extracts from those podcast series and has converted them into a book smart way of doing things um contributors include dr adrian savile the one dealer uh justice malala Songezo Zibi, Bruce Whitfield, oh, Bruce Whitfield, and others. Uh, a, a most erudite mob with which, with whom to hang around. Then Hopper Seven, a journalist, took bookshop, uh, turned bookshop owner this evening about what it's like running a bookshop in downtown Johannesburg inside an old bank. Griffin Shea is going to be joining us later on on how I make money that comes after eyewitness news at half past seven. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Dr. Joshua Bell is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology and has been working on the Fair Trade Certification. Fair Trade Certification should give you peace of mind. It's a bit like the ratings agencies should be to, to markets. If a ratings agency says a country is AAA or AA, or in the case of South Africa, below investment grade, you should be able to trust that certification. In the same way, if a product or a service puts a fair trade label on itself, you should be able to trust that the origins of that product have got certain high standards that it needs to stick to. Joshua, doc, uh, Dr. Joshua, Joshua, Dr. Joshua Bell has found some annoying and frustrating anomalies. So, Joshua, tell me, please, the, the fair trade certification. We're going to talk specifically with regard to South Africa's wine industry. If I see a fair trade certification, what should it tell me about the, the bottle and its ingredients? Good evening, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, if you buy a fair trade wine, you should know that the workers are being paid minimum wage, that they have a uh, collective bargaining power, that they have um, you know, fair housing, that the farms meet certain environmental standards. Um, and if you buy that bottle of wine, it will be more expensive than other wines because a certain amount should go towards a premium. And that premium should be um, invested in worker projects selected by a uh, fair trade premium committee, worker committee, where they decide on what they um, will spend it on. 
Okay, but what, what should it tell me about the ingredients, though? Because I'm not just buying access to a fair trade label. It should tell me that my grapes are grown in a certain way, pressed in a certain way, that certain chemicals are not used, that workers live in a particular grade of housing or pay perhaps a particular level of salary. Certainly that's how the coffee industry um, sort of worked. Yeah, I think it was one of the first um, products to go fair trade. That's how it differentiated itself. Yes, so um, with that, uh, you know, there are environmental standards that should be met, particularly in terms of the use of pesticides, which um, in practice, personally, I've found have not been uh, kept up. Um, in terms of worker housing, you know, there should be a certain level of uh, decency and the houses are expected to be um, meet a certain criteria, which... Again, in practice, I haven't found that to be the case. So, what, do I mean? Again, I'm I'm not conscious of a fair trade certification on many South African wines. Is it something that is fairly widespread in our in in, in our industry? No, it isn't. Um, so, fair trade wines are also particularly marketed to European um, markets. Those are some of the largest buyers, but. Um, you know, the South African wine industry has gone through quite a bit historically. And I mean, we've had the Bitter Grapes documentary, which shed light on harsh conditions and the Duan's uprising and so on. So my interest was looking at this um, the certification that's come in and said, we are different from these, um, you know, the other issues that we see in this industry. So allow us entry into these markets. And in effect, um, fair trade does facilitate uh, entry into fair trade wine production networks, which are largely European in terms of the consumers. So, if we see a South African bottle of wine with a fair trade label on it, can we trust the fair trade label? Um, <laughs> personally, I have found there to be issues. I can't speak um, for all of the the wine farms um, that are certified, but for the ones that I visited, there were serious issues. Um, and more recently, in March 2023, uh, there was actually a march um, by 150 workers from Fairtrade uh, certified farms that have also um, raised issues of poor working conditions, poor housing, uh, environmental uh, issues in terms of exposure to pesticides. So there are serious issues. Thank you, Dr. Joshua Bell, postdoctoral research fellow at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Fair trade, not all that it is cracked up to be, certainly from a South African wine industry perspective. That's certainly the message coming through from Dr. Joshua Bell, who's done a postdoctoral thesis on this particular topic. And he's also warning because the fair trade certification is not a cheap process, the cost of the process makes it most accessible to the largest and most powerful producers in the South African wine industry. Although the certification has traditionally been preserved for small producers in South Africa, it has been extended to large commercial farms because they're in a better position to afford the costs associated with the process. So unfortunately, there is a commercial incentive here, of course. Um, And he looked at five fair trade wine farms in the winelands and has come up with his study and argues that it's not necessarily worth 
uh, the label it is written on. Have you heard? The South African National Blood Service has implemented a digital donor questionnaire. Good. Uh, what it means is you can now complete your donation questionnaire digitally. Uh, whether you are a regular donor or considering your first donation, you'll appreciate the new donation experience. You still have to go and sit there and give blood. You still have to get the needle in the arm. I'm afraid there's no going around that, but they do it so well. They really do. And you feel really good about it afterwards. Just don't try and ride the 947 cycle to the next day. That's not recommended. Don't give blood the day before the 947. I did that once. Only once. Bring your ID document to register on the new system. You can call 0800-119-031 to confirm your nearest donation site. In my defense, the guys were there and I felt all like I should give blood and I thought I'd be lighter. (laughs) South African National Blood Service, trusted to save lives, unlike Bruce, who cannot be trusted with anything. On to our book reviews this evening with Bronwyn Williams. Her book is Rescuing Our Republic. R-O-R, instead of S-O-S, radical ideas on how to save South Africa from itself. Uh, The author, the editor, the person pulling it all together, the chief cook and bottle washer, the person who is ultimately responsible uh, for getting a whole group of people together and saying, so, how do we fix this place, is Bronwyn Williams. She'll be with us in just a moment. Uh, At half past seven after Eyewitness News, we're going to talk to a fabulous entrepreneur by the name of Griff Shay. Griff arrived in South Africa, and it's a lovely backstory, and I want Griff to share it in more detail, but it's to do with homophobia. It's to do with visas for his partner in the United States. And arriving in South Africa as a journalist working for AFP, Agence France Presse, um, and somehow getting into the book trade. As I said to John earlier on this afternoon, this went are you nuts? I mean, oh, that's frying pan out of the fire, frying pan into the fire stuff. That is, oh, I'm not in enough trouble in the industry. I mean, let me go and find something even harder to do. Because <laughs> a book selling, I think, must be one of the toughest, toughest games. Somebody's written books like Bronwyn Williams. Um, and uh, you realize very quickly that although, you know, the booksellers make a margin on a book and they have lots of people in and they have lovely places to hang around and be, the book business itself is tough. Do let's pause for a moment as we raise Bronwyn Williams and return in a gif. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in retail's golden quarter this Black Friday to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insight Series. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. Business books. Tonight, a book with a difference, one uh, to which I'm privileged enough to have contributed alongside some deep thinkers and erudite individuals. Uh, It's edited by the regular Money Show book reviewer, Bronwyn Williams, whose day job is trend translator and future finance specialist at Flux Trends. The big premise here, Bronwyn, is we're all products of the decisions that we make and the actions we take on an individual basis and South Africa as a country is the product of the decisions we make as voters and the actions that are taken on our behalf. Um, And yeah, the country is no different to us as individuals, isn't it? 
Exactly. I mean, if there's one sort of quote that can sum up this little project that we put together, and thank you, of course, for the gratuitous self-promotional opportunity here, because hopefully it's in everyone's interest to participate in this conversation. It has to be from my favorite author, Terry Pratchett, who I try to shoehorn into every conversation, including this one, and comes up many times in the book. And it's this idea that even if it's not our fault, that things are broken, things are imperfect, that the power goes out every couple of hours, if there are holes in the road, it is our responsibility to do something about it going forward because if not you, kind of who? Which is of course not a message anyone wants to hear in November at the end of, the, of a very hard year but that's the, that's the reality. Like No one's going to fix this place unless we do. And that was the premise of this little really work of love or this labor of love that we put together, Ludwig and myself, it's Discourse ZA, put together this Rescuing Our Republic book of con- with conversations with people like yourself, people who have optimism even in the face of chaos and and you know this bruce you know that optimism is not a popular position to take these days in fact oh, you will get no, people lots hate of it. hate mail people, and terrible oh, oh yeah if you dare to say you're optimistic <laughs> no absolutely but again the opposite of optimism is pessimism and pessimism is absolutely nowhere and i'll give you endless quotes that i use in my speaking where uh, somebody like uh, mm. Pete Mouton at PSG. Um, you know, negative people never build anything. And uh, you know, this is talking up my exactly. own uh, small contribution to this lovely tome. But it is this idea that you know you you can sit and subjugate and ooze and be, feel sorry for yourself and lick your wounds and be absolutely miserable, um, and you will go up, you will go nowhere. And the world is created by optimists. Um, the world is built by optimists. The world is is taken forward by optimists. It's a it's a very strong belief that I have and you can fight me if you want to I'll be behind the bicycle shed from five past eight what are the common themes and you've got you've got a disparate group of people um, from economists to land experts to people who do in the stock market and political analysts and even a politician himself Songhezo Zibi who is contesting the elections you might get into trouble with the IEC for including only one politician but maybe he's the one you want to listen to um was there a common theme that came through with all of these diverse and interesting people that you brought you brought into the project well, the sort of broad strokes where commonality is the sort of PPE place, so politics, philosophy, and economics. And in our defense, when it comes to Songhezo, he wasn't a politician yet when we did the interview with him. He only announced his candidacy for the elections after Ooh, yeah. we had compiled all of our, all of our terms and conditions. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, 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 it's actually, it, it speaks directly to the premise of the book, which is, as you said, this idea of we have to actually do things. And I'm just going to go back to the point you made around optimism. Opt- I'm not an optimist myself. I'm a very cynical, negative person in, in my real life. But I do realize after spending far too much money on economic education, that expectations do shape our reality. And that the only Completely. actual optimism yes. that counts is the optimism backed by action, right? It's the, it's the actions that you take <laughs> that determine the future that we get. And at the same time, the expectations we share with each other and whatever audience we get, like this platform that you've given me here this evening, the conversations we have change people's expectations slightly. So if we spend time wallowing in despair and in cynicism, we sort of perpetuate that. We kind of get what we expect, but not in terms of a just expectations, expectation backed by action. And Songhezo is someone that 
one of the, the key themes that came through was this idea that optimism or whatever you want, you actually have to do something to get it. You can't just complain about it and talk about it. You actually have to do something. That was one of the themes that came through. Uh, optimism you've spoken about. And perhaps the most important one that came through again and again and again was the idea of ownership. And um, Charles Savage, the CEO of Purple Group, I'm sure many of your use or your listeners here are very familiar with with what he's doing there with easy equities and the recent controversy with their yep. pricing all of that nonetheless it actually kind of ties into the thesis that we have here which is this idea that you have to actually put skin in the game you have to actually invest in the future that you want so again it's this idea of optimism backed by action just came through again and again and again so see something solve something was basically the sort of people that we wanted to speak to and the sort of ideas we wanted to get across. And so the idea of ownership in the ideas that you want to see more of is just so critical because we get what we invest in, whether we're investing our time on reading clickbait articles on X or the platform formerly known as Twitter or whatever the place that you go and find news that makes you feel good or bad about yourself and you share that, you're perpetuating that, you get more of it. At the same time, what you invest in with your capital, however little capital you have, if you're lucky enough to have capital, you get more of that, right? I mean, if you buy more of a particular brand, that brand makes more of that product. If you invest in a company, you invested not just in the company, but you also incentivize to make sure that the society and the country around that company that you're invested in succeeds so that your investment succeeds. There's this idea of ownership and optimism backed by action is so critical because it turns negative cycles into positive cycles. And we do know it, it's, in South Africa. It's, it's the anything, idea. Sorry, sorry, Bronwyn. It, it is the idea. I mean, Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winning economist, 2019, mm. he wrote a book called Narrative yes. Economics, how stories Love go it. viral and drive major economic events. So if you, you talk yes. down um, a company, a, a sector, a country, a family, uh, an opponent, you talk them down and constantly talk them down. It goes to the Goebbels hypothesis of, you know, as, you can, as long as you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes a fact. And if you keep talking yourself into a negative stupor, your outcomes are going to become less and less positive because people stop believing, you stop believing, you, you, you start convincing yourself that your narrative is the accurate one and you respond accordingly to that. Whereas without lying to yourself, but seeking what I like to call the upside of down, um, looking for opportunity in uncertainty <laughs> and chaos, you start finding opportunity. And it, it's that sense of not taking things at face value. What's the most radical idea? You call it radical ideas. What is one yeah. of the more radical so ideas a, that comes hmm. out of your contributors? Well, definitely. The way we're sort of selling this book to people who are interested in buying it is that, that it's a great way to start a fight with your least and or favorite relative at this year's festive parties, right? Or with your colleagues Brilliant. that you just want to start an argument with. So, yes, we've got some ideas. Like we already mentioned that even just the idea of optimism is very unfashionable at the moment. We're sort of definitely not in fashion here, you and I, Bruce. So, but that's, that's the thin end of the wedge. We got into some really interesting conversations around even the our constitution itself, we, yes, we touched the holy grail, right? There are no sacred cows here. We were quite happy to bring the sacred cows out for potential slaughtering when they needed to be. So we touched on the constitution. I'm not going to give too much away. We did that with T.K. Poe, who's a lecturer at WITS. 
He's also involved in Discourse ZA and he had made some very compelling points around something that I talk about all the time. This is like this idea that we get attached to means rather than ends. And this idea that if something is not getting us the result that we want, we have a right to question it, or at least to open up conversations around it. And that sounds more controversial than it really is, but I'm going to leave that sort of cliffhanger there. And the other one that I know that's already started arguments at the various places I've started presenting some of these ideas at, I know it's the one that gets people the most riled up, is the chapter actually with the only non-South African or African involved in the project. And that's with a gentleman by the name of Lars Dusay, who isn't, he's actually an art. What, what, what is he? He's, he's an architect that's got into city planning and game development, but has also developed a passion for trying to preach the gospel of a rather old-fashioned and, again, quite out-of-fashion economic idea, that of Georgism. So this whole concept of Georgism is this idea that perhaps we're taxing the wrong things. We're taxing goods instead of taxing bads. So we're getting more bads and less goods. And also this idea that really tax the heart of something that's very close to sort of right wing and Austrian economics, the idea of what property ownership is. And if we can challenge some of these ideas of how we define the differences between ownership and stewardship going forward. And you actually end up with some really interesting conversations that are neither left nor right wing that actually are a whole new way of talking about some of our most contentious issues, like issues of things like land rights and expropriation without compensation, but from a very different vantage point. Those would be some of my sort of most favorite conversation starters. And the point of this book is to open conversations, not to close them. You're not supposed to agree with everything, but we do want you to talk about these things. We want you to, yeah, but engage to bring the ideas. Yeah, to the center. No, completely, completely, completely. Um, I wonder, though, um, and here's the risk associated with all of these sorts of things, is you're interviewing a bunch of people who, to different degrees, are privileged with various levels of access to public and private services. You are interviewing essentially middle-class people with middle-class problems, and they are therefore middle-class problem solvers, solving middle-class problems for middle-class people. How do you stop this from being that book? Because it's it's a universal problem where you go to interview people with some level of education, some level of experience, some opinion on stuff who happen to be in the public eye. They tend to be those sorts of people. Yeah, unfortunately, you've called it exactly right. I mean, we are the chattering inessential classes. We are the people who did very well during COVID when the rest of the world was struggling to actually make ends meet, the people that were actually doing the essential things. But I do like to think that we do come from a varied background. Even if the people that are featured in this book are successful now, they're certainly not people that were born with silver spoons in their mouths. Rather, they are people that, like I started off with, saw there were problems that weren't their fault but also saw that they could be their responsibility and they could do something about it. And I think that if you go through the conversations, you will see the the opinions are very different. They cut across all the traditional political divides. And there are people that have succeeded based on very different endowments, succeeded at least in having an opinion and coming to some sort of point of having an idea about where the future should lie. 
And I think that one of the chapters there that really speaks to the fringes rather than speaking to the already comfortable middle classes would be that of Wandile Selobo, who, of course, is one of our agricultural economists, one of the most prominent ones in the country, who really does speak for the little guy when he writes about the future and what we need to get and getting the basics right rather than just the theoretical things right. So he really speaks about the most basic thing you need of all, which is like food and water, like the real basics. I think we've done as best as we could with picking 10 conversations that will start more conversations and hopefully spawn new ideas. We've done the best that we can given our own endowments and our own our own endowments in terms of our own privileged position in society. Of course, there's going to come with a bias and a lens there. We have worked quite hard. We had no, over 100 conversations but, but before, and we've chosen these 10. Here's the uh, ideas without action are simply thought showers. I, mean, I don't know how better way of explaining them. They've got absolutely yeah. no value whatsoever. <laughs> um, and this is about putting thoughts into ideas, ideas into action and inspiring action. Rescuing our republic, radical ideas on how to save South Africa from itself. Bronwyn Williams pulling it all together and talking to her book this evening. Delighted to have made a very small contribution to that process. Thank you, Bronwyn Williams. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. How I Make Money brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. Griffin Shea is with us this evening in studio. Griffin has got a mission to get more people reading. In an era where libraries are failing, he's occupying a very rare and incredibly important place in downtown Johannesburg. You went, Griffin, from journalism to running a bookstore. And I said to, to John earlier on today... That's like going from the frying pan and firmly into the fire. What possessed you to go from one industry under siege into another? Yeah, I mean, midlife crisis is the only honest answer there, I think. There's no real way to explain it. No, a bit more of a backstory to it, because, I mean, it is. there's a lovely story to it. There's a story of visa problems and issues of love and trying to be together with your partner and the U.S. being the U.S. and South Africa opening itself up to same-sex relationships from 1997 onwards, I think it was. And suddenly you went, hold on a second that's a place where we can go and make a future. No, exactly. And I am always tell people I'm eternally grateful to South Africa that gave family a home and helped us grow our family. Uh, so I was working for the French news agency for AFP, and I was in Thailand, which is where I met my partner then. Um, and when my contract there was over, we had to move and find a new place. And actually, you know, I'm from Louisiana, and Katrina had hit during that period, and I was feeling very, like, patriotic. We're going to go home. We're going to rebuild. We're going to do all this stuff, you know. And then when it was time to get the visa, they were basically like, well, you know, we'll take you, we'll take your kid, you know, my son that I had adopted, who was like three years old at the time, uh, but we could not figure out the visa for my partner. And it was like, well, so you have to make a choice, you know, are you going to stay together or are you going to find somewhere else to go? And, you know, around then, um, there happened to be a job come open here in Joburg. And I thought, no, but that's <laughs> the right choice then, right? <laughs> it's all lining up. And when we sat down, actually, with the immigration people um, to be, I was feeling very belligerent after this very frustrating experience with the United States. And I was like, what are you going to make us do? Like, what hoops do we have to jump through? And the very nice man is like, you sign here at the bottom. I'm like, <laughs> And then what? He's like, and then you wait. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, yeah, so we got here and when it was time for, um, to move again, uh, we had to move every four years, uh, with my old job. 
you know, we decided actually, no, Joburg's been very good to us. We'd adopted another kid. Um, my partner's business was doing well. And so it's like, no, we need to reboot. So I went to Vitz. I did the creative writing program. And, you know, I wrote a young adult novel called The Golden Rhino and then realized like, oh, wait, now someone has to buy this book. <laughs> you know, there's another step in this process that I haven't thought anything about. Um, and so I started wandering around the city trying to figure out like, well, where do people buy books? Because everyone's very pessimistic about reading and very pessimistic about, you know, people buying books or, you know, just engaging with kind of book culture at all. And, you know, back then, like Park Station um, was super busy all the time because you had like one and a half million passengers on Metro Rail, plus all the taxi buses and the Ray of Aya and the half a million people who live downtown. And I thought, well, surely like, there must be one reader, you know, in all of those people. It can't be that no one reads. And of course, when I got down there, there were bookstores like sometimes every 10 meters, you know, three or four on a block. And some of them were bookstores, very huge, you know, what we think of as being a bookstore, you know, like walls full of shelves. And some of them were trading on the pavement and some of them had a hair salon in a bookstore or were selling nappies in a bookstore or were running a spaza shop that had a book section. And, you know, just dozens and dozens of people selling books in lots of different ways. Um, so it kind of all started by accident. I was trying to pitch my book and then getting a lot of feedback about reading culture doesn't exist and nobody in South Africa reads and, you know, lots of hand wringing. And I was like, well, but I mean, if you've got all these bookshops in town, people selling books, someone's buying them because there's 60 or 70 people supporting a family. A lot of them have employees. They're paying leases, different places. You know, they're running a business, something's working. Um, and actually, Bridget Impey at Chicana threw a giant stack of books at my face and said, here, see if they'll buy these. <laughs> and it kind of started like that. Um, and now here we are eight years later, and I you know, was laughing with the producer because um, for a segment about you know, how I make money, I was like, oh, it's so gratifying that you think I make money. I just really think it's amazing. <laughs> no, this is, I mean, again, I, I, I haven't yet interrogated my producers on this because... <laughs> The book business, notoriously, I mean, the wine business, how do you make a small fortune in the wine business? Start with a big one. And I wonder if the book business is not similar, because certainly if you talk to Grattan Kirk at Exclusive Books, he'll tell you for a month of Sundays what a terrible business the book business is. And when you see a, you sell a hundred of a title, you feel terribly proud of yourself. Um, and they've got the scale. You're an independent, standalone bookstore on the corner of Love Day and Commissioner Streets in downtown Johannesburg. But I haven't been downtown in Joburg for a long time. The last time, actually, I went to downtown was on a Saturday night. There was an event happening, I think, at the Rand Club. That's how long ago this was. Um, and I was pulled over by a, a, a Metro policeman who shouted at me for making work for him by coming into the middle of town. And when I got into trouble, he'd then have to come and rescue me. And I, I got a police escort off to the Rand Club. And oh, it was gosh. a lovely <laughs> evening. Um, but but you, you get to, you know, your, your impressions are shaped by those experiences. And I haven't been back to, to town beyond going to apply for a passport. But that's another story altogether and one, one kind of feels that downtown Joburg is a little bit more on the exciting side of exciting at times yeah I mean I think it's um, you know again like when I was a kid growing up and we would I grew up in the country so we were terrified of big cities because everyone told you the exact things they tell you about Joburg you know <laughs> the exact things um, and you know when you're in New Orleans you walk through and it's a beautiful place and lots of tourism and amazing food and great music and you walk two blocks in a different direction and it's like oh wait no I'm going back where I was before. This is the wrong direction. 
And I think Joburg right Washington now... Washington, D.C. is not, not dissimilar. I 100%, mean, exactly. one or two roads from the Mall. Um, you do. You do a quick re- uh, U-turn and you go back to the museums. I mean, that's... Uh, and big cities are big cities. Yeah. You know, like where we are, you know, the Rand Club's right behind us. Across the street is the Joburg Culinary School where they do handmade chocolate and have a pasta studio. You know, <laughs> it's like... Um, but if you go... I'm not going to lie and say that if you walk five blocks in a different direction, you're going to find handmade chocolates. Like, you're not, you know. Um, but I think the area that we're in, you know, we've been working really hard um, the last couple of years to get people to think about it in a different way. And so we've started this Joburg Literary District project. We call it the Lit District. Um, and so we're working on maps and signage and trying to point out, actually, you've got this huge book culture in the city. There's us, there's all these other booksellers, there's the main library, and there's a whole conversation about the city library. But even when it's closed, there's 89 branch libraries in the city of Johannesburg, and there's online libraries in the city of Johannesburg, and online schools at the libraries. And I think to just focus on the parts that are not working great doesn't really help and overshadows the parts that are working well, and you want to water the garden, you know, so that it grows, yeah? Um, But we work basically by doing lots of different things, you know, so the bookstore is an important anchor and, you know, a huge part of my heart. Um, But to really make things work, you know, we also run the nonprofit, and during the COVID years, that's definitely the African Book Trust is how we stayed afloat. You know, we got a lot of grant money to do different kinds of work, so we could run workshops to write new books in indigenous languages. And so we commissioned new children's books. Um, and some of those we published, and some of those were published through that um, that Cadbury One Story program. Some of them were published independently. The authors went and found their own home for it. Um, and, you know, we're doing the Social Employment Fund. So we've got over 60 employees right now, and some of them are working on recreating the original edition of Thomas Mofolo's Shaka in Sasutu, And some of them are cleaning the sidewalks and trying to fix up the old Rissick Street post office and helping people find directions and all kinds of different things. Um, But it's a lot of pots to stir, but I think that's the only way to make it work. And it also makes it more interesting. Like, I think it's much more fun. Um, And it's opened the door to different kinds of editorial work. So, you know, leaving journalism, I still do it sometimes. You know, I do some editorial consulting and editing for, like, special projects at the Namibian newspaper or, you know, the occasional freelance piece. Um, but part of what we do to really earn money that keeps everything running is doing editorial work for, you know, more like communications. We can help people do do their PR or design their website or publish their own book, um, which is funny because I, when I was started, we started kind of doing it to figure out how to make things work. And then as I've been reading more about the history of books in Joburg, that's actually, you know, the way CNA started. You know, they started selling newspapers on the side of the road a block from where we are. But at some point, they were also a publisher, and they were also doing copywriting, and they sold something that I've never been able to figure out what it is, but they were advertising themselves as a seller of fancy goods. It's like, well, what were fancy goods in 1910 in Johannesburg? You know, like, yeah. what qualified? So, um, no, yeah. but it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, and and this whole thing of, you know, people, people write off inner cities all over the world, and it is the people who bring them back. And by bringing life into the inner city, you bring in hope and you bring in optimism and you bring in a sense of ownership and you bring in a sense of pride um and that has this wonderful flywheel effect does not well and i think yeah it helps us change the way that we talk about ourselves you know because i think the conversation around reading culture and um this kind of it feels like very self-flagellating you know just like we're beating ourselves up about things um but when you sit and you really look it's like well actually we have more libraries than los angeles does 
you know, what are the odds? You know, we don't have the money Los Angeles does, but we care more about libraries to build them in more places and to make sure there's a library serving Deep Sloot. You know, the city built one out there. And so how amazing is that? Um, and to run educational programs in those spaces that are really needed. And just the number of bookstores we have in the city to think about it in a different way, that the demand for books is so high that you would need 60 bookstores on one kilometer of the city and that all of these, a lot of the booksellers, you know, when I started walking around, I've got you know, my own stereotypes and baggage to kind of work through. And <laughs> you assume like, oh, somebody's selling books on the side of the road. They must be the poorest of the poor. And some of the guys at the traffic lights, of course, I mean, they're not like living their best life necessarily. Um, but a lot of the booksellers are doing well and sending their kids to school and own cars and, you know, kind of trying to do like, you know, the, doing the business I mean, thing. I mean, are you making... I mean, your your partner manages Thai health spas. Um, you know, do you rely on his income, or can do you make a contribution to the household finances? How I don't know how blunt I can be with this one. Oh, you can be super. It blunt. seems like you you <laughs> you're involved in this this enormous and important social project, and it's wonderful. But does it? Would would you be able to sustain yourself and your kids if you had to do it alone? I mean, no doubt the first few years, like the the Thai massage was paying all the bills. <laughs> that was no doubt. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, it's changed. Um, partly because the nonprofit has grown so much, so we can afford to employ people and cover some of the bills that way. And it's the consulting work, you know, it's the kind of editorial support that really... Um, where we can charge more money and then kind of bridge that to fund the other projects. Um so it's yeah, it's been kind of an interesting shift um, because I don't know that that would have been true. And definitely when I first opened, I was you know sitting around at a dinner asking friends, what should I name the bookstore? And one pops out with Griffin's Money Pit, you know, which <laughs> <laughs> he was not wrong for the first it's while. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but so many businesses are because it takes a long time to get traction and get started. Um, and you call it Bridge Books. Um, and I, I wonder how you chose where to focus because you cannot, I mean, there are millions of titles. Amazon can carry every single title in the world because it just has to have a warehouse somewhere. But when you've got shelves and you've got rent and you've got all of those sorts of things, it's a, a lot more complicated to choose your focus. And I think in any small business, you've got to decide who you are, what you are, who your customer is, and then hope that your customer will return the, will return the favor of, of serving your business or, you know, at least giving custom to your business. Yeah, I mean, you know, when um, things have changed quite a lot, you know, so to talk about the way things were when I started seven or eight years ago, um, you know, at that time it was really hard to find local titles. And I was, you know, also writing a book set in South Africa and Zimbabwe for kids, adopted kids like my, you know, my own kids. And um, you know, they were very hard to find the other titles. You know, so you would look at the catalogs of things that were published and they'd be like, well, they're not in the stores and they're not necessarily in the libraries either. So, you know, where do all these books end up? And so that was sort of the thought. It's like, well, there must be a gap to serve, um, you know, people looking really for local books. Uh, so we really focus on African literature and on African languages. So we keep books in all 11 languages. We have a big children's section that, you know, is the space where a lot of, a lot of the publishing is happening in indigenous languages, tends to be children's books in the Christian market. Um, and people come to us for really different things, you know, so they know they're going to find kind of the collection of poetry that may not have been on the shelf in a bigger store for a while and that will have an author who 
maybe made a splash a few years ago, but hasn't been able to finish the second one yet. And that'll still be around. Um, so it's really thinking, you know, we're a local bookstore. We're about building a community and some of that's a geographic community and some of it's kind of a broader community of interest. Um, and I think it's, you know, I also don't want to lie and say like we can survive solely with the market in town. You know, we've had, you know, we had a shop in Mabonang before lockdown and we're going to be opening up in Linden to try and, you know, you've got to get some of the suburban money in too. And it's hard to have an event in the CBD because the access is just not what it used to be. You know, the, a lot of the, without Metro rail functioning, a lot of the people who used to come in that way don't have access to the city anymore as often as they used to. Um, it's maddening, isn't it? I it's mean, it's, it's, it's infuriating. so infuriating because the, the, the city has got such, you know, such great potential infrastructure, if you like. Mm. Um, we know that it is stressed and, 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 and not working in the way that it should. The city of Johannesburg has been appallingly managed for an awfully long time. But there is access. There are people. There are people living and making their livings and going to school and working and dying in downtown Johannesburg. Life is happening. And that life needs to be served and serviced. And, you know, it's people like yourself who've got um, I, I, either a, a, a great sense of humor or go, hold on a second, there is hope, optimism, and money in this place. Well, and I think, you know, what people don't always think about too is a lot of the old office buildings, especially in Marshalltown, you know, where we are, have been flipped and turned into, you know, yeah. very entry-level, middle-class, nice apartments with security guards and front desks and nice kitchens and, you know, kind of stone countertops and all those things. Um, you know, I think the challenge since COVID has been that a lot of the people living in those flats were working at the banks or for local government or provincial government. And now that they can work remotely, they don't feel the need to be physically so close to the office. And so there's a huge True. shift, yeah. which is not unique to Joburg, right? That's a global problem of how do we adapt to this world of, you know, we're working remotely or in a hybrid way and where do we want to live? And I think there's there'll be more shifts for that to come. Um, but for me, that's the the big thing is that people don't always appreciate how many middle class people are living in the CBD and to what degree it's really a space of education. Because when you walk around, there's schools everywhere, you know, private creches and private schools and, you know, you on the second floor of a building. So if you're driving by, you may not notice it because it's upstairs, you know, so the sign may not be really clear to you as you're driving through. Um, but the number of school kids who come by, you know, that's one of the best parts is the kids who use us as kind of a study space, especially since the, the city library has been closed. It's a huge number of kids who walk through every afternoon and they just need some Wi-Fi. They need a place that's quiet. They catch up on their homework. They visit with their friends. And I mean, no, they don't spend money, but, you know, um, but it's also a wonderful part of being a neighborhood that you can provide that kind of space. I remember being a school kid in Bloemfontein and going to the main street in Bloemfontein where there was a CNA and daring to sit down with a book and page through it and being chucked out of the bookshop by a revolting manager of a CNA a long time ago. Um, and, and you just go, well, that wasn't very nice and you never go back again. And it's that ability to create a safe space for people to sit down and read and to fall in love with books because they're your future customers. They are, and they're also going to be telling their friends about that experience, right? It's like growing a community among those youth as well who are going to be like, oh, actually, you know, there's this cool place where I go to hang out and 
it's a bookstore, you know, which may not have crossed their minds before. And I think for a lot of people um, who didn't grow up with a bookstore in their neighborhood, and you know, my town was so small, we didn't have a bookstore for a long time. We only got a bookstore when I was kind of finishing high school, I guess. Um, you know, if, you, if you're not used to going into that space, people don't even know how to interact yeah. with it because it can be, it's just a new experience. And if you're not welcoming people into the experience and helping grow that readership, um, you know, it's not going to happen by itself. Yeah. No, you, you're talking up public libraries and I love the fact that you're doing that because again, our impression of public libraries and I'm surprised by the number of libraries in town because we hear about the Joburg Central Library and of course being shut and our good friend Frank Maguegue, who's a regular guest with Aubrey um, on Talk at Nine is, is such a is such a, a wonderful proponent of that public library because he was working as a hawker and would go to the public library and actually ended up being inspired to become an actuarial scientist and became, you know, and he, and he did all of his studying and the librarian at the Joburg Central Library helped him. And that was it's such a wonderful, uplifting story that because without inspiring people in literature and in books and in libraries, I think, you know, society as a whole is ultimately doomed. Well, and the thing about what to do about the city library has really been on my mind a lot the last, you know, few months because it's not opening soon. Um, but also, like, how do we want it to operate? And is there maybe a different model that's more like maybe the market theater, where there's a market theater foundation and government also supports it, but there's a nonprofit that supplements what government can do. And there's paid events and ticket sales and venue hires and all those things as well. Yeah. Um, but maybe just think about it in a different way. Because if part of the problem is financial, there is money in South Africa. Like we can, you know, there's a way to figure out how to harness that if you give people the right opening and feel like it's not going to waste, you know, to feel like it's going to be serving a higher purpose. Um, and just think about things a little bit differently. It's an interesting conversation to have. What's your most popular book at the moment at Bridge Books in Loveday Street and Commissioner Street? Um, you know, we were looking at it this morning. I personally am shocked. It's a book that we published uh, like a few years ago. <laughs> um, it's a reprint of the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. And we sold, I think, 75 copies okay. last month. And it's also one of these things about meeting a need because it's in the public domain. It was published over 100 years ago. Um, it wasn't being published very accessibly, so it was an $80 book when we were looking for it for a customer. And then when we realized it was in the public domain and we could republish it and sell it, you know, and sell it at a profit for 160 rand, it's like, oh, well, let's do that. You know, like, that makes much more sense. Um, but we've got a new distributor now, and suddenly it's got a much broader market, too. So we're selling it all over the country, and it's to do more things like that make a lot of sense. But I thought... Oh, I thought the Marcus Garvey moment had kind of passed, but there's something in the air. People are interested right now. Griffin, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this evening. Griffin Shea is astonishing in the, the, the creation of Bridge Books, downtown Johannesburg, eight years ago, out of journalism and into the book business. Yes, Griffin's Money Pit was the original name, or could have been the original name, but he stuck with Bridge Books, and that has stuck too.